Well, thank you, choir and orchestra, for leading us well today, as always. We know that our theme here at First Baptist Arlington for this year is Why Does It Matter? And for the fall, we've asked this question, the church, why does it matter? And as you might imagine, in all these years that I have served local churches as a pastor and, uh, and then just uh, studying the scripture and just living life in the church, I've thought a lot about the church and I love the church. But I've also thought about how do you, how do you just in a nutshell make a comment about what the church is? Because the church is so multifaceted and rich and deep and textured with so many things. And so I've landed on this very simple phrase that I think at least captures the essence of who we are. And that is the church is a purposeful community of gathered believers following the Jesus way together. If, if you stopped me on an elevator and said, tell me about the church real quick, that's my elevator speech. Um, we're, we're a purposeful community and we do gather and we are believers and we're following the Jesus way, but we're doing that together. So this fall, we are studying the church and we're using primarily the book of Acts to guide us. We're going back to those early churches, in fact, the very first one, to see if we can glean some insight and learn how they did what they were called to do and how it might inform us as we consider how we do what we're called to do. So with that said, uh, we've looked at several aspects of the church already. Well, today's topic is First Baptist Arlington. We are changing and I know that is music to your ears. We love it, don't we? We love change. Don't you just wish that just everything would change all around you? Wouldn't that be awesome? If you just felt like everything was changing, wouldn't that be a comforting feeling to you? Well, I want to talk a little bit about that today. So I want you to look at this text, Acts 2. Um, remember, we've looked at Pentecost last Sunday and this proclamation of the gospel through Peter and these other apostles. And now we come to this little summary where, where Luke just pauses and gives us a little glimpse of this new community, okay? And we have several of these along the way in the book of Acts where Luke will just stop and just say a word about the church. He does that here. So look at verse 42 of Acts 2 where Luke writes this, they devoted themselves, now these are the people that were baptized Pentecost, right? They've, they've heard the word, they've repented, they've been baptized, they've now formed this new community. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." Now, here's what we're going to do over these next few weeks. We're going to unpack all of that. So we're going to just start with one piece of it this morning, okay? But in order to do that, I just want to remind y'all 
of the image that we have adopted as a church as we think about the kind of people that we're trying to help grow and develop at First Baptist Arlington. And the image for us is Psalm 1, the Psalm 1 tree. Let me show it to you again. And uh, just a reminder that we want to help our church family, our church members develop a deep root system, okay? That's where you ask the question, who am I? Why am I here? So when you come to know Jesus, you begin to develop that root system. But what you'll discover is Jesus has a plan for you. And so you'll notice that trunk of the tree, we call that the area of transformational. That that's where you're being transformed by the power of the teachings of the gospel. And the question you ask there is what is happening to me? What is God doing to me? But God's not just building a strong trunk just for a trunk's sake. There's also the branches and the leaves and the fruit. That's what it means to be influential. What is happening through me? Because the Lord wants you to be a fruitful, productive person. And so we as a church, that's our image. We want to help you flourish as a Christian, okay? So with that said, let me remind you also this morning the statement of mission that we've embraced as a church, our, our purpose. What are we about at First Baptist Arlington? We are becoming fruitful believers, influencing our world for Christ, okay? So we've talked a little bit about that already. This particular statement has the two legs that I believe are incredibly important for you, enrichment and engagement. Engagement is influencing our world for Christ. We're gonna talk about that. But today we're going to talk about enrichment, becoming fruitful believers. So I want you to think about that with me this morning. If, if someone were to ask you, do you consider yourself a fruitful believer? I wonder what your answer would be. Is, is that how you view yourself? Now, you know, you bear fruit in season. That's why I love that image. Because we all go through times of... Um, what do you want to call it? Pruning, um, waiting, um, hoping. Um, we, we all experience that. But we also go through times of bearing fruit where we, sometimes it's uh, casting shade, you know, and, and sometimes there are people who need to come and rest in the shade of your life. I, I believe if we were to stop this morning and give us all a chance, every one of us in this room can name somebody who cast shade for us and we were, able, we were able to rest for a season in the shade of their lives. Couldn't you do that this morning? Don't you love those kind of people? I'm gonna tell you right now, if you live in Texas, you know about shade. You will park at the end of the parking lot. I'm telling you, normally you'll go in and you're looking for that first, that first spot. Mid-July, you couldn't care less about that first spot. You're looking for just maybe one little branch with one leaf on it that just might have just, just one little piece of shade. That's where you park, right? Um, so we know about the value of shade. Well, we want to build those kind of people. Now, we, we worded that purpose statement um, purposefully. I want you to notice the word it begins with, becoming. Because this is going to be a lifelong journey for you. You're always going to be becoming. 
You're not going to get your graduation certificate, your diploma, until you actually leave. Y'all know what I mean? You won't get your diploma until you leave. This is going to follow you your entire life. You're going to be becoming all of your life. That's, that's what's supposed to happen. You're on what I would call a sacramental journey. It's a journey of transformation. It's a journey of being shaped by the gospel. It's a journey of being formed and changed by the power of the gospel. In fact, the way I would put it is, your life as a Christian, what should be happening to you is, you should be on a journey of enrichment. The gospel should be enriching your life. Being a part of the people of God should enrich your life. The Apostle Paul talks a lot about that. In, in, in Paul's two letters to the church at Corinth, he, he was writing to the Corinthian church. Now, Corinth was a very affluent city in the ancient world. It was, it was filled with people who had found a way to make more money because of their location than most people in the ancient world ever thought was possible. Because Corinth was located on this narrow isthmus. That's a hard word for me to say. Isthmus, okay? But what happened was they discovered that there were people who didn't want to sail all around um, the, the end of, of that peninsula. And that narrow isthmus, Corinth figured out that they could help the folks who were transporting goods, they could help them just cross that narrow isthmus. So they had a group of engineers come together before the first century, and they built this passageway. They, they had these small um, tracks that they could actually put small vessels on, drag them up on the land, and drag them across that isthmus and drop them into a harbor on the other side. So it saved them weeks of traveling around the peninsula. The, one, the ships that were too big, they figured out a system, this pulley system, where they would unload the cargo and drag it across this rail system to the other side and load it on another ship. And they charged the merchants tariffs and taxes. They had to pay labor. And so it was a very affluent city. And Paul knew that. And so when he wrote them, he actually used some of that imagery. Let, let, let me tell you what I mean by that. In, in the opening to Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, um, he, know, he uses a particular word that he's going to use several times in his correspondence with him. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 4, Paul says this, I always thank my God for you because of the grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. You've been enriched. That word is plousios is the Greek word. It means to be wealthy. It means to have and abundance. And Paul says, when I look at you all, the, the church at Corinth, you are rich. Now, that word was thrown around in Corinth, but Paul means something different by it. Paul's talking about a life of enrichment. As a matter of fact, let, let me read to you what he says about it later. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance and troubles, hardships, distress, beatings, imprisonments. He tells all about the, the challenging time that he had. But he says this in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 6. We're always rejoicing. We are poor, yet making many rich. Plausia, same word. 
So Paul says to the church at Corinth, he says, here's what I know about you. You are rich. What's he talking about? He's talking about something very different than what they were able to gain through their ingenuity and the engineering system that existed there. Paul is talking about a relationship with Jesus that has enriched these people's lives, that has brought something into their life that they could not have without him. And Paul was experiencing that himself. Paul says, as a matter of fact, even though we showed up in Corinth poor, we made you rich. And God has actually enriched you with everything that you need. I would contend, y'all, today, that's really the essence of the gospel. Because, see, your relationship with Jesus, it opens you up to a life of riches. Whenever you make the decision to follow Jesus, everything in your life changes. It opens you up to God's grace. It opens you up to depth, to meaning, to, to purpose, to joy, to love. As you live with God's people, on your sacramental journey. Your life is going to be enriched and you're going to enrich the lives of others. That's how it works. What we say around here is blessed people, blessed people. That means when you're blessed, when you receive these riches of the grace of God, you share that with others. We do that together in community. And so our lives are enriched. And you right now are on a journey of enrichment. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm grateful that I can't promise you that life will be easy as a Christian because for whatever reason, God has kept us in this broken world. And even though the, the age to come has already been established, I'm still living in this sinful age and they have actually intersected and I see glimpses of the kingdom of God. I see places where God has restored and recreated, but there's still plenty of tragedy and sorrow and hurt and pain and we live right in the midst of it. I can't promise you that everything's going to be rosy, but what I can promise you is you will be enriched beyond measure. You won't even be able to, to put it into words, what God can do in you and through you as you follow Jesus. So how does it work? You say, okay, preacher, that sounds really good. How do you get it? Okay. Well, I want us to look at the early church because I think they are exhibit A in understanding enrichment. Okay. So look at what this text says. This text says, look at verse 42, if you still have your Bibles open. This text says they devoted themselves. So that's where we're going to start with devotion. The early church was all in. These believers were steadfastly devoted to this new life in Christ. You know what? So are we. <laughs> this isn't a first century phenomenon. So are we. Um, that's who we are. When you look at that word devoted, it's used six times in the book of Acts by Luke. It means to, to faithfully adhere to something. It means to steadfastly be committed to something. As a matter of fact, it's used in verse 46. It's translated differently. In 46 of Acts 2, it says every day they continued to meet together. That phrase is actually the same word. They steadfastly devoted themselves to each other. They, they stayed together. Here's what I would tell you about us at First Baptist Arlington. We are not a Jesus admiration club. We don't admire Jesus. We are devoted to Jesus. This is the place where devoted people belong. And we are trying to communicate that in how we live our lives. So these people were devoted. Luke says that. Now he's going to tell us they're devoted to a number of things. So what are they devoted to? What's a, what is a church filled with believers supposed to be devoted to? We've already discovered, we've already discussed we're a believer's church. And if we're devoted people, what are we devoted to? What is it that's the object of our attention? Well, 
Luke gives us some information about the first church, and I believe it informs this church. One of the things that we're devoted to, the early church was devoted to, is spiritual formation. We're devoted to it. The early believers were devoted to the authoritative teaching of the apostles. So were we. I want you to think about that. In the first church, guess who was there doing ministry? The apostles. Now, can you imagine? Uh, can you imagine instead of having a meeting with me, you could have a meeting with John? Wouldn't that be awesome? In, instead of calling my assistant, you could call Simon Peter's assistant. Wouldn't that be awesome? And you could say, hey man, what did, what did Jesus say about this right here? And you've got somebody who's actually walked with Jesus, lived with Jesus for three years. Did Jesus ever talk about this? Let me tell you what Jesus said. Let, let me tell you what I saw Jesus do one time. Can, I mean, come on, y'all. I mean, I'm good. Okay? But I ain't John or Peter. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm not that. Can you imagine what that was like? I mean, I would have worn them out, wouldn't you? I got one more question, John. What about, well, what about, well, how did, well, when did, well, what did he say? Well, just tell me something new. I mean, they were devoted to just taking all this in. Well, what did the apostles teach them? What, what do you think they talked about? When it says they were committed to the apostolic teaching, the apostles' teaching, we call that today the apostolic witness. And what I want you to know is we're committed to it too. These, these apostles had to teach these new believers about the, about the truths about salvation, about the person and work of Christ, about their identity as human beings, about the ethics of Christianity. I mean, the, the entire Christian faith was in their hands, if you think about it. And they had to pass it down to another generation. And so you and I today, as Christians, as evangelical Christians, we are committed to the apostolic witness just like they were. Well, what is the apostolic witness in 2023? It's the New Testament. That's what it is. It's the teachings of the apostles. Every New Testament book was either written by an apostle or somebody who was closely affiliated with an apostle or it wouldn't be in the New Testament. Now, our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters are committed to what's called apostolic succession. In other words, try to somehow trace the pastor of the church all the way back to Simon Peter. And there's a line of succession. We're not committed to that. We're committed to the apostolic witness. Does that make sense? We're committed to the teachings of the apostles that we believe are still right here for us in our New Testament. And so that means here's what happens to you when you become a Christian. Um, and, and, and sociologists study us. They look at our belief, our behavior, and our belonging. That, that's how so, sociologists study religion and adherence of religion. And so when you become a Christian, your belief system is affected, your behavior is impacted, and your sense of belonging takes place now with the people of God. And so all of that is woven into what it means to be a Christian. And these truths will change your life. That's what I want you to know this morning. When, I, when I'm using this phrase, we are changing, here's why we're changing. Because as Jesus enriches your life, which he will do, he also changes your life. He shapes you. He forms you. And here's what he does. He begins at the very core of your life. He doesn't start in the periphery. That's not how it works with Jesus. He redeems you because he knows you're a sinner. 
And so he starts at the very heart of who you are and forgives you. He restores you into a right relationship with God. And he begins to recreate you and change you and shape you. Here's what I can promise you about Jesus Christ. If you meet him, he will not leave you where you are. In fact, he will change you. So I've got news for you, Christian. Here's what's in your future. Change. And you're going to love it. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. Now, why would I be surprised? Change is just a part of life. I shouldn't be surprised by it. Don't be. Change is everywhere. Um, in fact, this morning, I was, I was talking with John before we came here. Do you know that in 1955, the Fortune 500 companies that were on that list, 1955, you know today how many of them are left on the Fortune 500 list? It's like 60 of them. So 440 companies that were Fortune 500 companies in 1955 no longer are. Companies like the American Motors Corporation. They made Ramblers. Y'all don't even remember that? We had one, a 1964 Rambler station wagon. I can't wait to say that in the next service because these kids will be Googling station wagon. What in the world is a station wagon? You know? We had one, and it had, those, um, it had those little vent windows up in the corner. You know what I'm talking about, that little triangle, and you could, you could roll that little thing down and open that dude up, and my daddy smoked cigars in the car when we were kids, and we'd drive, and that, we didn't have air conditioning, so you'd want to roll those windows down, but the problem was you'd be on the freeway, and when you'd roll those windows down, it created enough, enough uh, I don't know, tension in the car. It could, it could actually suck the skinny kids out of the vehicle, you know, so... <laughs> You couldn't do that, so what we had to do was just open that little old, just that little bitty old vent window to just somehow let the cigar smoke circulate. My daddy loved it because he would smoke it three or four times, you know. Um, whatever happened to the American Motors Corporation? They used to be a Fortune 500 company. Guess what? They're not here anymore. The Studebaker Corporation. Guess what? They don't make them anymore. In other words, change just happens. It's all around us. I shouldn't be surprised by it. Do you know in May... Last year, they had a special ceremony in New York City, in Manhattan. It was at the corner of 7th Avenue and 50th Street. And there were a team of workers from the city of New York that had a power saw, and they cut the power to the last public pay telephone in New York City. Do you know in 2001, when September 11 happened, there were 30,000 public pay telephones in Manhattan. Guess what? There's not one left. <laughs> 30,000. Think about the technology that took place to make all that work. Change happens. Here's the difference though with Jesus. The change Jesus wants to bring into your life is purposeful change. He's gonna change you because you need to be changed. And he knows that. And he's not gonna leave you alone. He's not just going to let you be. You can't just say, well, I'm just not like that. Okay. Well, that, that's, that, that's just not important to me. Okay, maybe right now it's not. Well, I'm, I'm just never going to deal with that right there. We'll see. Jesus will not leave you alone, y'all. He, and here's what I've learned about Jesus. He doesn't start out here in the periphery. He just goes right to the, he, he just goes right, he just digs right on in. Because he knows this periphery will change if you change this. Tim Keller he says when he was in college, 
um, before he became a pastor, he said, we had a guy on our campus that was just very promiscuous. He said, I mean, he, he just was a guy who, who, who loved women and he loved to, as he called it, conquer them. He said, and one day we were having a fellowship at our, in our Christian group and he showed up, excuse me, he showed up. And, and Keller said, we all knew him and we thought, we know he is not interested in what we're doing. Well, term, come to find out the guy was. And he told them, he said, I, I have made a decision to become a Christian. I want to join this group and I'm, 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 and I'm changing my life. I'm not going to be the way I've been. Y'all know how I've been. I'm not going to be that way anymore. And Keller said, they all rejoiced. They said, well, he joined their group. And over time, he took the group over. He had to be in charge of everything. He wanted to run every Bible study. He wanted to be in charge of every fellowship. And he said, and what I noticed was, he said, I was a young uh, student in college. And what I realized was, at his core was a desire to control. And he'd never surrendered. Even after he became a Christian, he was still living the very same life. Even though he wasn't promiscuous anymore, all that was about control. And Keller said, I learned right then that if you're really, really, really going to be someone who's seriously devoted to Jesus, you're going to have to be recreated on the inside. That's what Jesus does. And he'll do that to you because that's how he works. He, he is going to address whatever it is in the depth of your heart and your life. Now, here's what else I've noticed about that, y'all. It, uh, it takes time. You know, it just, it takes time. And that's what's hard about it. I mean, we live in a microwavable bacon culture, right? Uh, we, we can't even wait for bacon to fry, my stars. You know, we got drive through everything. You, you, you can't order spiritual maturity on Amazon. This, this is not how this works. And that makes it really frustrating. In fact, remember what Jesus said about it? Jesus said, you know, the kingdom of God... Now think about these disciples when Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God. They had an idea about the kingdom of God and they knew what they wanted. They wanted the kingdom of God now. And they wanted it to be powerful. And they wanted it to be an expression of the glory of God compared to the glory of Rome, remember? And Jesus said this. He said, you know, the kingdom of God is like this. He said, actually, it's like a farmer sowing seed. That's what it's like. He said, that farmer, he'll, he'll just put the seed out. And some of that seed is going to fall on a path where people are walking. Some of that seed is going to fall on the rocky ground next to the path. Some of it's going to grow where the weeds are still growing. And some of it's going to plant and take root in the really good soil. He said, and then you wait. And it takes time. And the seed on the path. Y'all know, y'all with me, right? Y'all still with me? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Y'all know the story? Now, can you imagine how underwhelming that must have felt to the disciples? So you're telling us the kingdom of God is going to be like a farmer? We want the kingdom of God to be like Julius Caesar. We want you to ride in on a steed. And we want you to pull that sword out. And we want you to drive these Romans out of our land. And we want to rule this place. We ain't got time to wait on a seed. And what if it never grows? Well, Jesus said, well, that's really what it's like. So here's what I'd say to me and you. Whatever it is that God is working on in your life, it's going to take some time to shape and change and form. And it's going to be fits and starts. It's, it, it's going to be two steps forward. And then every once in a while, one or two or three steps backwards. And then another 
two steps forward, but in due time, the gospel is really good and it's really good seed and it will change your life. It's just not gonna happen overnight. Pain doesn't go away overnight. Victory doesn't happen overnight. But here's what I want you to know. Healing doesn't happen overnight. But in due time, if you give God a chance, I promise you, it'll take place. And he will change you. Um, there's a, a, a guy named V.H. Vanstone. He's written um, um, a book about the, the changing power of Jesus. Let me read to you. Uh, let me find I think it's this other page. He, uh, he's, he was reading the gospel of Mark. And he said, here's what I notice about Mark, about Jesus, rather, as I'm reading the first few pages of Mark. He says this about Jesus. As he moves about, he leaves behind him a trail of transformed scenes and changed situations. Fishermen no longer at their nets, sick people restored to health, critics confounded, a storm stilled, hunger assuaged, a dead girl raised to life. Jesus' presence is an active and instantly transforming presence. He is never the mere observer, it should say, of the scene or the one who waits upon events, but always the transformer of the scene and the initiator of events. In other words, what is Van Stone saying? He's saying that Jesus is a change agent. And that is exactly who he's going to be in your life. He is going to change you. And I guess I want to make sure y'all know that's really good news. You're going to be better off. And so is the church. Aren't you glad the church is not filled with just stuck people? How sad would that be if the church was filled with just stuck people who refused to go anywhere and do anything and ever change anything? That's not how it works. Our lives, our lives are being formed and shaped by the power of the gospel. I was reading this story, the kind of fascinating story the other day about this scientist in Washington, D.C. His name is Newton Howard. He's a brain scientist. He's done some projects at MIT, and he's a specialist in developing prosthetic equipment that actually connects, connects to brain waves. He's a very creative, brilliant man. And he finally decided he wanted to celebrate the beauty and the power of the imagination of human beings and their ability to just transform everything. And so he lives in the historic Georgetown neighborhood. So he, in, right outside of D.C., he commissioned two statues to be put right in front of his house. So let me show you the statues. That's um, Optimus Prime and Bumblebee. They're Transformers, if y'all don't know the movie. Can y'all imagine how well this was received by the Georgetown Historic Committee? Then... They actually came to him and said, you can't do this. And he said, actually, I can. This is my house. This is my stoop. And these are my statues. And so he's in a battle right now with the historic commission because they don't like having these statues standing in front of their little historic area. And he has argued the imagination of the human being. It's incredible what human minds can accomplish. He said, we transform things. Well, I'm not sure when I think about Optimus Prime and Bumblebee being in my uh, neighborhood. But I will say this. I like the principle though. Because I believe in transformation. I believe in the power to change. I believe in the power of God to change my life and yours. And I know how desperately sometimes I need it. How sometimes I need to be rescued from myself. Because left to my own devices, 
What am I capable of? Well, I don't know that I want to know. I've looked around and I've seen too many people who live that way. And left to their own devices, it turns out they're capable of all kinds of things. And so I don't want to be recalcitrant in my relationship with Jesus. I want to be malleable. I want to be formed and shaped. So as followers of Jesus, here's what's happening to you, whether you know it or not. We're being formed, we're being conformed, and we're being transformed along the Jesus way. Now in Greek, the word is morphe. That means formed. We get our word morph from that. And so what is he doing? He's, he's, he's shaping you. He's conforming you to the image of his son. And it's, I want y'all to know, it's not just a minor repair job. He's not just fixing a couple of dents in your fender. That, that's not how this works. He's, he's all the way in the very heart of who you are. That's where he's fiddling. That's where the hand of Jesus is in your life. And that's what he's going to change because as he does that, it will change everything else about you. It is a fundamental truth of Christianity that the gospel is transformative. And so this morning, I want to invite you to that change. I want to invite you to that journey, that process of you being shaped and morphed and formed by the power of the gospel in your life in the areas where you really need it. And what I've discovered over time, I need different areas addressed at different seasons in my life. I don't know why that is, but it just is. My journey with Jesus, Jesus has chosen to address certain things in my life that he didn't address years ago. Maybe I wasn't ready for it. Maybe it wasn't time for it. I'm not sure. But I will tell you this, I've learned to trust him because he's really good at it. And I want to invite you to that. Now, years ago when we were um, building the Welcome Center here at our church, um, that's right here at Center Street, um, I, wanted, I wanted some kind of statement when you walk into our church. I, want, I wanted there to be a message when you made your way into this church. So we landed on a scripture ring. You know what I'm talking about? Out in the floor of the Welcome Center? Let, let me show it to you. There it is. Uh, I so love it. It's beautiful. Um, you'll see the cross that's designed in the middle of it. And uh, it's the Carolingian cross. It's the, these intersecting, um, um, the, the three intersections symbolize the Trinity. Sometimes it's called the Trinitarian cross. But around it, you'll notice Acts 2.42 is what's written in the scripture ring. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. You know, when we were designing that, John Hoffman was building it for us. And John gave me the design, and, and I told him, I said, well, we're going to put a scripture around that ring. And he said, what scripture? I said, I don't know yet. Let me pray about it. And so I did. It took a while. And John would just send it to me and say, just to remind you, here it is. You know, we need to put a scripture around it. I said, I know that. I'm praying about it. So one day he said, hey, I found one. Just want you to look at it, see what you think about it, since you can't find one. <laughs> so he sent me one. And it said, Jesus wept. <laughs> Just spread out all the way around it. So I said, that's a good one. But that's not the one we're going to use. But as I prayed about it, y'all, this is, this is what I imagine. What do I want people to know when they walk in this place? What is this place? What do I want them to know when they walk out? Well, I want them to know that. This church is devoted. We're devoted to the apostles' teaching. We're devoted to the fellowship. We're devoted to breaking of bread. We're devoted to prayer, to worship. In other words, there's something that marks us. And I wanted all that around a cross. 
And so when you walk in this church, you walk, whether you realize it or not, you walk right across a cross. And when you die, if your funeral's in this church and we take your body out of this church, the last thing you do, the last thing you do when we walk your body out of this church, your body is rolled right across that cross so that that's the last imprint left on you as you leave this place. That means something to me because that's who we are. We are following this Jesus who died on a cross for us. I'm okay with him changing my life. How about you? So let me say this. First Baptist Arlington, we're changing. Praise God. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, we love you. Again, we thank you. And we confess to you, Lord, that we don't always like change. It's not always our favorite. And yet at the same time, we would all admit in this room, we need it. And we know we need it. And we know that we're not always in tune enough to know what needs to change. And so we're gonna trust you with that. And we're gonna invite you to bring it about in our lives. May it be so. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.